Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, as Dave said, as we continue our teaching series, Future Church. Up on the docket for today is a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry. Yes, Dave asked me to teach on that as kind of a guest. Please stand with me for the reading of scripture. We stand to honor the text that we are about to read as literature, yes, but as far more than a letter from the ancient Greco-Roman world, as scripture in the language of the New Testament, God breathed. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse one to five. God, as we open our heart to you, we welcome you in your word as you welcome us into your inner life of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, living in perpetual delight in one another. You overflow with love and welcome and divine hospitality. And as you welcome us, God, we in turn welcome you into the inner chamber of our being where we are often not at peace but at war with ourself and often not full of delight but sorrow over the state of the world and the state of our own soul and, and often there in place of peace is a kind of chaos. God, we just welcome you. That inner chamber was made for you. Take your rightful place at the deepest center of who we are. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take a seat. Two stories. A few days ago, I was on my morning run around the Portland waterfront. It was a beautiful spring day, which is hit or miss in my city. And as I was running along the esplanade, I passed a young man coming toward me on the path dressed in all black, I mean, head to toe, and it was like a character out of a movie. Not only was he wearing a mask, but kind of a, a black wrap all around his face, down around his neck with two slits for an eye, like a, a ninja, basically. Full tactical gear, Kevlar vest, knives on one side, brass knuckles on the other, again, all in black, grappling hook on his backpack in his back. Um, full on, and he was walking on the balls of his feet as if just spoiling for violence. 
His body had turned into a bastion for an ideology that you call Antifa or whatever you want to call it, a, a set of ideas about what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. And it's one thing to see an ideology in slogans, in you know, graffiti on the side of a building after a late night riot. It's another thing to see it at 10 in the morning in broad daylight in a body. Second story, a few hours later, I got on a plane to fly down to you, where it turns out the weather is even worse. <laughs> Yesterday, not today. Today we're back to the California I love, thank you. One of the things I love about airports is um, they are a great reminder that there are a lot of people in the world who don't look and think like me. And, you know, if you live in a city, uh, I think as a general rule, cities are ethnically diverse but politically homogenous. In particular, our two cities are very much a kind of far-left political echo chamber. And when you're at an airport, you realize, oh, there's all sorts of people that at least live within driving distance who are on a different page than you. Um, in particular, in Oregon, you know, Portland's not that large of a city, and it's, it's left of left of left, but you drive 30 minutes out of the city, and Oregon's like farmers, ranchers, and hippies that started smoking pot in 1963 and just have never stopped. That's basically <laughs> Oregon. I don't say that to slam it at all. It just is what it is. And as I'm sitting there in my seat, coming down the aisle, boarding the plane, it's a cowboy. And, I mean, full-on, like, cowboy boots, wrangler jeans, leather vest. What's the name for the cowboy tie thing? What's it called? A bolo tie, right. Bolo tie, the full thing. And as the loudspeaker over the intercom on the plane, for the third time, turned up louder than normal, says, to take off your mask on a plane is a federal offense punishable by da-da-da-da-da. He just takes his mask, pulls it down and starts to just swagger down, you know? I had all sorts of thoughts, and I'm not going to tell you what they were. I'll let you just wonder. And I just thought, man, here's yet another body turned into a bastion for a whole other set of ideas about what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. Two very different types of people in the same city on the same day, one from the left and the other from the right. But I'm not here to talk about political polarization. That's Dave's job. Uh, <laughs> I want to key in on what the two men or the two stories have in common. We live in the age of ideology. And ideologies from both sides of the culture wars have more in common than a lot of us realize. Let's do just a little theory for a few minutes. Ideology is marked by two basic features. One, it's when you take a part of the truth and you make it the whole. Pretty much all ideologies start with a truth, but then they make one thing the whole thing, and in doing so, as a general rule, they distort a vision of reality into a parody of itself. An easy example from the last century is the Russian Revolution, which started out as a vision of a society of equality and justice and a great intelligent critique of classism, ended up as the greatest genocide in human history, as best we can tell. Utopia, turned into dystopia. Or before that, in our own country, the American Revolution, which started out as liberty and justice for all, give me liberty or give me death, ended as the most egregious example of chattel slavery in human history. 
You see, we humans are a mixed bag. We're made in the image of God. All of us, Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic, doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum, we're, we're full. We have divine fingerprints in our DNA, just meaning we are full of at least a modicum of goodness and an impulse to love, but we are also warped by what Christian theologians call the fall and by a soul that is bent in on the self, where that inner chamber, that inner woman or inner man that was designed for God, not only for his presence and his love, but for his loving rule or his kingdom, instead of God in that place is now us in that place. And everything is out, which means everything that we touch, we corrupt with the disease of sin. That is unpopular to say, but you know it's true in the depth of your being. And if you don't, just live a while longer and you will come to realize that is my humble guess. Second, ideology is when you take a good thing and you make it ultimate. You take something like equality or justice or freedom or politics or a nation state or reform of this, that, and the other, all good things, but when they become the ultimate thing, when they become de facto gods, that people put their faith in and they give their allegiance to, the result is almost always disaster because God is kicked off his rightful place at the center of our heart. The common denominator in all ideologies from both sides and down through history is they put humanity and its ways and its moral reasoning and its autonomy at the center not God and his ways and his wisdom and moral judgments and his authority at the center. And it turns out that no one but God is any good at being God. So ideologies take a part of the truth and they make it the whole and they take a good thing and they make it ultimate. Interesting, that is also how, that is pretty much exactly how a lot of Christian theologians define idolatry. Could it be that ideology is the ideolatry of our generation? Many cultural analysts over the last year or two have noted the religious nature of ideologies on both sides of the culture wars. A recent article for The Economist called it America's New Religious War. You may like or not like the imagery there, but there's a truth that people are leaving the church in droves for either the left or the right's version of what is a pseudo-religious movement. Pick your ideology of choice. They have a gospel, they have a high priesthood, they have conversion stories before and after, they have those who do not yet know the truth with a capital T, they have dogma and doctrine that you have to believe and are not allowed to question or doubt, they have excommunication, they even have eschatology, they have the worst of religious fundamentalism. Ideologies often start out as theories about how to make the soul or society itself a better place, but then they evolve into a metaphysical lens by which people see all of life. In that sense, they attempt to replace religion. They offer you an identity and with it a sense of self and even self-worth, even if it is a performative one and a fragile one. 
They offer you a community to belong to, even if that community is also performative, and it is more of a tribal anti-community. It's more against than it is for. They offer you meaning and purpose, whether or not that is grounded in reality. They offer you an ethical vision of good and evil and a line of demarcation between the righteous and the wicked so that you can know you're the righteous and not the wicked, and you can look down your nose at other people and feel safe as yourself. And they offer you hope for a better tomorrow. What we all crave, a city and a nation and a world of equality, justice, fill in the blank, whatever it is you ache for. Decades ago, Leslie Newbegin, who was kind of like the Mark Sayers of the 1970s, if you know that, he was a pastor as well as a cultural commentator. He made the prediction that as the West secularized, religion would not go away, rather it would be transferred over to politics. He warned of the rise of what he called the political religions and said it would be the cause of religious wars. There's a lot of talk right now about how America is becoming less religious, in particular if you, if you take a city like San Francisco or Portland as the future. That's up for grabs right now. But I would argue uh, it's actually becoming more religious. You could argue that we are living through a religious revival as a generation. It's just that religion for both the left and the right is now politics. But what's confusing is that what Newbegin called the political religions, or what we would call, I think, ideologies, draw on Christian symbols and language. The West as a whole is still just, Faulkner called it, haunted by the Christian imagination. From the pictures of the cross, at the Capitol riots in January, which is still a trauma in our nation's memory, to the way that the, way, the name of Jesus himself is thrown around by entertainers or activists who often are very unchristian. I don't normally go in for clickbaity celebrity pastor scandal articles online. It's just not my jam for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> They are a cheap shot. For every scandal, there are a thousand or more non-famous pastors that you will never hear of in your life, unless if you are under their care, who love and suffer for the bride of Christ for decades. But the journalist Ben Sixsmith had a great article a few months ago that Dave and I were reading called The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors. In it, he writes about the tragic fall of a well-known young pastor who is kind of from that neo-Pentecostal kind of vein of the church. And he ties it to a larger pattern that he calls the, quote, with a twist of Christianity trend. Listen to his, an excerpt from his article. There is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. That was his outsider's interpretation of the church. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all of those things and premarital sex. You're allowed to laugh at that, that's okay. Um, we can see the with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere, and in context he's writing about Jerry Falwell, if you know who that is, was representative of the right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalistic self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians, getting a little closer to your city and mine, who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. While different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, 
while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, it feel, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. You see, while the ideologies of our day are new, faddish even at some level, the temptation to mix the way of Jesus and what the New Testament writers call the way of the world is ancient. The age-old temptation of the people of God, read the Old Testament, isn't atheism but idolatry. Not to God or but God and you read through the Bible in a year, every year you read through or, or whenever, you read Exodus, the first, one of the first stories of Israel when they are still at the base of Mount Sinai, before they even receive the Ten Commandments, Moses is up on the mountain, what do they do? They take gold, they manipulate their high priest Aaron, or their pastor, so to speak, to give them what they want, which is a golden idol, and then what do they call that golden idol? Yahweh and they hold a festival, the text says, to Yahweh, or to the Lord, and then we read they got up to indulge in revelry, which is like a gracious way of saying Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? Just extreme sexual license in the name of Yahweh, of the Lord. Not in the name of Zeus or Poseidon or Ra or Baal in the name of the Lord because if you can get God to baptize whatever it is you want, you can sin guilt-free and let your body be destroyed by ideas. The temptation for most of us is, as it was for them millennia ago, to a kind of syncretism a kind of DIY faith that's a mix of Jesus and Sabbath and contemplative prayer and progressive sex ethics and Western individualism and Silicon Valley free market economics or whatever it is for you. Pick your cocktail of choice. Dave sent me a great article a few months ago on, uh, remember that article on religious bundling? And there was a comparison between like cable bundling where like now you can pick, you know what I mean? I want ESPN and I want some HBO and I want this and I want that. Now we have like religious bundling. I'll have like a little bit of the way of Jesus. I like that Sabbath thing, that's kind of cool. And then mindfulness, a little neuroscience, some Buddhism, some yoga, some self-actualization, some goddess stuff. Like, I mean, just kind of bundle it together based on my own kind of inner intuition of right and wrong and my own desire as if that is an accurate barometer of what will lead you to the good life. How do we follow Jesus in the age of ideology? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is not just a passage, I, I would argue it is a path forward for such a time as this. In context, Paul is writing to a very similar city or very similar church and a very similar, well, they were actually a lot more dysfunctional than you. I have a, a very high opinion of your church. 
Paul does not have a high opinion of the church in Corinth, but in a, in a very similar city to yours and to mine. It was very progressive. In fact, depending on your metric of choice, more progressive than both our cities. And in context, in chapter 10, Paul is dealing with a group of what he calls false apostles, meaning leaders in the church who claim to be Christian leaders, but in reality are, here's a quote, false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. And you can bet if that was true 2,000 years ago, it is more than likely true in our city and our time. Let's just work through the text line by line. Take a look again at verse one. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Just note, before we say anything about it, just note his tone right before the content. He is, he is full-on crosswise with the Corinthians, but how does he come? In a spirit of humility and gentleness with the inner disposition of Christ himself. I appeal to you. The word there, appeal, in Greek means a polite request. It was used as a political word. It was used by a diplomat to another country. He's not trying to coerce or control the church. He is calling people to return to Christ because there is no more compelling vision of life, the capital L, than Christ himself. I, Paul, who am, quote, timid, most likely a reference to a previous letter, when face to face with you, but, quote, bold toward you, went away. Apparently, he wasn't all that impressive in person, but he was a bold writer. If you've ever read his 13 or 14 letters in the New Testament, he was more than a little feisty and wicked smart, right? But not in person. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, listen, who think that we live by the standards of this world. There were some people in the church, as there are some people in every church, I've been the person, I'm guessing you have too, who actually think that we, we meaning followers of Jesus, live by the standards of the world. Now, the world here does not mean planet Earth or you know, humanity. The world is a technical term in the New Testament. It's first used by Jesus a lot, and then it's picked up by Paul and the New Testament writers. The world, here's kind of a working definition, is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. That's kind of my one-sentence summary of Genesis chapter three. Dallas Willard, the philosopher, defined it as our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Dr. Gary Bashir, is a theological mentor to Dave and myself, said it this way, the world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign. Though his deception makes that hard to realize, if you are of the world, then it all seems right. Now, there's a left version of the world 
that most of us are a little more familiar with, and a right version that we read about online a little bit more. But no matter what side of the American political polarization phenomenon you slant toward, we all feel the gravitational pull of the world and have to resist a kind of orbital decay in our discipleship to Jesus. Paul goes on, for though we live in the world, you live in San Francisco, you're here. I live right in the center of Portland. We live in two of the most, quote, worldly cities in our nation, and we love it here, and we're, we're here, we're in it. We pay our taxes, we walk our dogs, we grocery shop, we volunteer, we, we're here. We're right in the middle. The ethos of the world is all around us. All we have to do is walk down the street, and we are almost assaulted by all sorts of ideologies, by the values and norms of... We live right in the middle of it. But, verse 3, we do not wage war as the world does. Please hear me. I'm not calling you to take America back from God or get your bullhorn and go out to the corner. We follow a rabbi who taught nonviolence and enemy love, which is still too, too radical of idea for most Christians on both sides of the culture war, who gave his life rather than take life. So we do not ever resort to violence or enemy hate or even what is more socially acceptable, contempt, which is basically a, a pastime for millennials, or moral superiority <laughs> or trolling on social media or whatever the example is. We do not wage war as the world does. Verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have, listen, divine power. Meaning we do not just fight with intellectualism. None of us are really, that, well, some of you, you're, some of you are that smart. I'm not that smart. We do not fight with just intellectualism, but with power. The word there is dunamis in Greek. It's where we get the word, or it's related to where we get the word dynamite. It is like a, an explosive, raw, untamed energy source, and it's divine power. It's that of God himself and his truth and his gospel. For what end? Quote, to demolish, and that word can also be translated to deconstruct, more on that in a minute, strongholds. The word here is okirama, and okirama was a military fortification. There are Okiroma, there are strongholds, there are fortified positions where the enemy is dug in, not just out there in the world, but in here, in the church, and in our own mind and body, mine and yours as well. Often what starts out as a foothold of the enemy, a lie that we come to believe about who God is or who we are, or what the good life actually is, or a moral opinion that we come to form about this, that, or the other, or a habit that we let into our muscle memory, or a relationship that we open our heart up to, or you fill in the blank, an area where intentional, or for the vast majority of us, unintentional, very few of us wake up one day and just make a conscious decision to walk away from Jesus, an area where we give the enemy room in our heart. And footholds often turn into strongholds that now we cannot dislodge or drive out on our own. We need divine power. Now what, this is really interesting, what are the strongholds that in Paul's mind we need to demolish, or again that word can be translated deconstruct. Take a look at verse five. 
we demolish, listen, arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Okay, this is fascinating. Two things. First, arguments. The word in Greek is logosmai. It means thoughts or thought patterns or ideas that flow through our mind on a regular basis in kind of clusters. And then two, every pretension, the word is hupsoma, and it's hard to translate to English. It more literally means exalted thing. I think if you have the ESV, it's translated every lofty opinion. In Eugene Peterson's version, the message, it's, quote, warped philosophies. My guess is that if Eugene were to translate it today, he would utilize the word ideologies. So strongholds, listen, in Paul's mind, the strongholds, of the enemy in our own mind and body that we need divine power to tear down are ideas and ideologies that, listen very carefully to his logic, are animated by a demonic power. They are not just ideas. They are ideas at the surface, but there is, there's a, a malignant will behind them that is hostile to the name of Jesus and the way of Jesus and the people of Jesus. And they have come, regardless of what language they use, like I'm having all my children right now read George Orwell, tyranny is freedom and freedom is tyranny. Use whatever language you want. Their intent is not to free you, but to enslave you. There's a lot of talk right now about the danger of tyranny, at least over the last few years, and that's fitting. But as the philosopher Dallas Willard again put it, quote, ideas, not tyrants, are the primary stronghold of evil in the human soul and society. But look at Paul's tactic to resist. Those of you that like are starting, your heart is starting to beat, like what are you gonna call me? Calm down. Verse five, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Note that for Paul, the battle for our soul, much less for our society, is won or lost on the field of our mind There is a war raging in his imagery, which we're we're a little uncomfortable with, not just out there, but in here, in our own inner mind and life, and it's not between the right and the left, but between Jesus and the world. As followers of Jesus, we wage war in our mind against the ideas and ideologies in order to make all of our life, listen to his closing phrase, obedient to Christ and obedient, there is a word that can I just offer we have kind of lost as a generation, myself included. You know, when you do what Jesus teaches because you agree with him, just to clarify, that's not obedience. That's you're doing what you want and think is best, and it's great because you happen to agree with Jesus. Obedience is when you do what Jesus teaches even when you don't understand or you even disagree in all honesty, because you trust him. And you trust his love and his wisdom and his authority. And you follow him as your teacher and more as your, in language that we are all familiar with, Lord and Savior, meaning he is in the place of God, not you, and he is the solution to the deepest problems of our soul and our society, not us. The word used for a very long time for this form of obedience is orthodoxy. 
ortho meaning right in Greek, and doxa meaning you can translate it belief or kind of right belief or idea, even right ideas. You may or may not like that word. It just means a body of ideas and ethics and practices that have been passed down from the life and teachings of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament for over 2,000 years. Yes, followers of Jesus, if you're new to Jesus, yes, followers of Jesus down through church history and around the world today and in our own church disagree on all sorts of secondary issues. But, and yes, the library of scripture itself is very clear about some things and opaque about others. But there is a body of truth that you can safely say, this is what followers of Jesus believe. And there is a way of life that you can safely, you are on firm ground to say, this is how followers of Jesus live. We belong to something that is ancient. The ideas and ideologies of culture come and go from generation to generation and tweet to tweet and era to era and culture to culture. We anchor in something ancient something far that is global and historic. We drink from a well that is deep and that is rich. Let the culture make what it will of what we believe and how we live. We follow the way of Jesus as generations before us for thousands of years have done the same. In fact, the New Testament word for what we call orthodoxy is just that, it's the way, often in your English translation with a capital W. And orthodoxy, if you call it that, or the way of Jesus, is a form of obedience to Christ. Put another way, a form of allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Or put into less confrontational language, it is a form of trusting surrender to the love and the wisdom of Christ. And this is an orthodox church, as is mine back home. It just is, and we make no apologies for that. I know that many of you are new to following Jesus, and in particular those with us online, and many, many of us are still trying to figure out what exactly it is that we believe. And Dave and Matt and others on your teaching team work very hard to teach with nuance and humility and intelligence and diligence, but this is not a progressive church, nor is it a conservative church. It does not align with the left or the right, it is a Jesus church. And the same is true of mine. We are here because we love Jesus. We have just come to find him the most compelling human being to ever live, and we believe that he was far more than just a human being. We find his life and his teachings to be the most compelling and true vision of the life that there is on offer in all of human history, in every culture, anywhere. We love him, we love to follow him, we love to pray to him morning by morning, day by day. We love to just sit in his presence and his peace in the spirit. We love scripture. We ache not just to read it and get our head around it, but to live it out, to, to live in the story of scripture, to let it into our body, let it form literally our neurobiology and who we become as human beings. 
And while we are quick to apologize for all of the ways that we do not measure up to Jesus' luminary example, we do not apologize for our love for Jesus. And our allegiance to him is not just a really smart rabbi or a social activist or political revolutionary, but as the Lord of all creation. As the Christ, meaning the king is what that word means who died for our sins and whom God raised from the dead and set at his right hand to rule over the universe as king of kings and lord of lords who one day will return to put the world to rights to usher in the city that we all ache to become a part of, a city without foundations whose builder and whose maker is God, to judge the righteous and the wicked, to end all evil forever and to reign. That's the gospel of Jesus. Now I know this is a little bit hard or a lot hard for some of you to swallow. We live, we are living through, your city is like, like a, a well of this, a generation-wide crisis of deconstruction. All around us, people that we love, family, friends, members in our own community group are being swept away by the ideologies and ideas of our time. Let me just speak to the deconstructionist kind of zeitgeist of our era for just a few moments before we end. The first thing that must be said about deconstruction is that there is a good type of deconstruction and much needs to be deconstructed. This is the kind that we see in Jesus in the temple and in Matthew 23 with the religious leaders of his day who were hypocrites and that we see in the Hebrew prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and we see in saints like Teresa of Avalia and in the reformers where they use scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church. But then there is another type of deconstruction that's a lot more true of our generation. I mean that in the broad sense who use the world to critique scripture's authority over the church. The former is the way of Jesus, the latter, can I say it boldly, is the way of Satan. The second thing that must be said is that deconstruction is much more complex than a simple, you're either orthodox or you're a heretic, kind of us versus them binary. Like human beings are far more complex than anything like that. There is no one-size-fits-all paradigm, that's very important to say, but as I see it, and all this is not chapter and verse or science, this is just my pastoral perspective, deconstruction is the access point between three external factors and three internal. On the external, it's a function of cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer called it, and a low discipleship culture that is more interested in making converts, again, this is a generalization, than making apprentices of Jesus. The Western church for a very long time, at, I mean, Bonhoeffer is writing in the 40s, at least since then, has created a milieu in which it is possible to be a Christian, whatever that means, but not a disciple of Jesus, and to have a Christ without a cross. Then second, you have ascendant secular ideologies, again, on both sides of the culture wars that are coming to replace Christianity in the Western world, quasi-religions that are not just held by elites, but now spread by the digital IV into our mindstream and educated into us by the school system and all around us in pop culture and corporate marketing departments. Then third, you have the tragic breakdown and trust of spiritual leaders. Scandal after scandal, fall after fall of people with my job, 
How many stories can a generation take before all trust in spiritual leaders is just used up and we can't do it anymore? So at the external level, you have low discipleship culture, aggressive secular ideologies, and a lot of distrust in pastors like myself. Then at an internal level, you have a lack of the fear of God. I think that is a safe and loving critique of our generation. And with it, a lack of surrender to God's fierce love. We have a Christianity without a cross, and the result is an undisciplined flesh in the language of the New Testament or an undiscipled flesh that is coddled and given free reign rather than conquered by the Spirit's divine power. Then too, you have a mind that is full of digital input rather than saturated in scripture and in prayer. Barner Group report, and this was a study done on millennials in 26 nations, not just Western, that the average millennial consumes over 3,000 hours of digital content a year, only 150 of which is Christian. That is a 20 to one ratio. This is key to realize because, I'm not saying like just listen to more podcasts, that's not a bad idea, but as Hui Hui Tan put it, you become what you contemplate. You become whatever it is you give your attention to on a regular basis, for better or for worse. Your mind is far more pliable than any of us want to realize. And if our ratio of secular ideas to Jesus' truth is 20 to 1, you can bet that is going to have a corrosive effect on our faith. Then finally, you have, again, I'm speaking in generalizations here. Give me grace for that, please. You have a wounded heart. I know almost nobody who has deconstructed their faith and left the church in anger or not who was not first wounded by a spiritual leader or a pastor or by a church or by their family of origin or by an experiencing community or it could just be the wound of singleness and and that lonely pain of ache. A lot of people deconstruct just out of the pain of not being able to find a Christian spouse. The wound could be from anything. We all have our own story of pain but you likely, if you're in this place, carry a wound. And emotional wounds, this is hard to hear, but are often portals for the demonic into our heart. And then we have a kind of double trauma, the original trauma of whatever the pain was, followed by the even worse trauma of demonic influence or at least lies that play in our mind and we let into our body, such as a story as when people suffer abuse and then they live with the lie that says you're dirty and you're unlovable and you can never trust anyone again. That's the double trauma. Now the enemy has a stronghold in you. Can be broken, but only by divine power. It's a great tragedy, and if that is your experience, we are so very sorry. And if that is your experience from the church, we are so very sorry. But together, the lack of a fear of God a mind that is just caught up in the noise of the world and just inundated with ideology and a wounded heart just become easy prey for the enemy to sneak in there and get a grip. Now, for those of you who are in deconstruction as we speak, this is not my attempt to label you or demean you or look down my nose at you at all. This has been a testing year for all of our faith, myself included. This is my loving attempt as a brother and friend to appeal to you to return to the love of God. 
because I watch people travel that path of deconstruction and I do not see life, peace, and freedom at the end. I see the exact opposite in, in every story on repeat. This is just my loving appeal to guard your heart and don't let the enemy, ideology or otherwise, don't let him have room in your heart. Don't let him take the place that was made for loving communion with the God who is love. This is the call of Paul in the text. Paul calls on us as followers of Jesus to aim the deconstructionist impulse that we love, right? That is in everything from a Silicon Valley app to a blogger and takedown of what, like it's all around us. He calls on us to actually harness that energy and direct it under Jesus as an act of discipleship and to deconstruct not the orthodoxy of the way of Jesus, but the ideologies of the world. So keep your inner feisty, let's take something down, but point it at the right thing, right? And let that itself be an act, not of rebellion, but of allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Now, as we wind down, and I'm way over my time because they don't have a timer here, and that's just, that's just danger, that's bad practice. <laughs> Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to index our hearts away from captivity to ideology and toward the freedom of life with Jesus, to demolish the strongholds of the enemy in our heart? Yes, there are many, but we would argue at the top of that list is scripture. Scripture, what is in your lap right now is a library of writings, not a book, It's very important, it's a library of writings that are both human and divine that together tell a unified story that leads us to follow Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi or a Bible teacher. His mind, read the four gospels, his mind was saturated in scripture. He would teach it, quote it, pray it, live it. He was obedient to scripture as a form of surrender to his father. For Jesus, this right here in our lap was far more than really good literature. It was God-breathed truth. And then God raised Jesus from the dead to validate Jesus' view of reality. Just to make sure like the logic here is crystal clear, we do not trust in Jesus because of the Bible. We trust in the Bible because of Jesus. Just make sure we're crystal clear there. We come to the, why are we reading the Bible this morning? Because we're following Jesus and Jesus was a rabbi or a Bible teacher and said this was more than just an ancient collection of writings. So we follow his example. We approach scripture the way, to the best of our ability and to discern the way that Jesus would approach scripture. We have all sorts of questions about this library and I study this for a living and I love it and I trust it. But I have all sorts of questions and all sorts of, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't get that. I know I'm missing something here, but I have come to trust Jesus. And so if he says, this is scripture and this is to be woven into the fabric of my inner man and to become a part of my daily life, then okay, I, followed, I trust him. I see where he is and what he has and I want that. I want that life. I follow him into that. For us as followers of Jesus, our aim isn't just to read scripture or even to understand it, but to obey it as an act of faith in Jesus. Any version of reading the Bible that does not end with obedience is not Jesus. But more than that, scripture for us is a vehicle for abiding in Jesus. It's relational. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. All of us have words or ideas 
that flow through our mind all day long. Jesus is not asking you to do something you're not already doing. He's asking you to let Jesus' words remain in you, to let his ideas, his truth, flow through our mind stream and give shape to the inner architecture of our heart, to where our will becomes so in sync with Jesus' will that pretty much anything we ask him for, he's like, yeah, I couldn't have asked for it better than myself, yes, or something like that. Our apprenticeship to Jesus, therefore, must curate our mind stream It must guard our mind as this kind of portal to our inner woman or man against the ideas and ideologies that are set up against the knowledge of God in the land, which for us means strict discipline around our phones and internet and TV and entertainment in quality and frequency and immorality. But we must also guide our mind into truth by living in Scripture. There's no right way to read Scripture. You can read a small section slowly and prayerfully, what some call Lectio Divina. You can also read or listen to a large swath of Scripture at once, which is how most of Scripture was actually designed to be experienced, a community sitting through an entire literary work in one sitting. You can study it one word at a time and analyze the text. You can listen to podcasts or teach on it, you can memorize it, you can pray it. It's not a right or wrong way. But as both of our churches continue to develop our rule of life, the team here has a few great practices for you to kind of an entry level practice where you kind of begin each day with just even 10 minutes of reading the text. And then kind of a reach practice where you have an extended time of reading in the quiet and in prayer before you ever touch your phone. And may our two churches just start the trend of like bringing back old school analog alarm clocks. Like, is that a thing here? It's a thing in our church. We're like, I don't know. There's not a lot to buy, but we have them. So the phone is in another room. There's like a little old school alarm clock with buttons on it that you actually have to push with your finger. It has to go down and up. It's, um, it's old school. It is OG, my friends. Very much. Now to end, as the band comes up, contrary to popular opinion, you know, faith is not a religious thing. David Foster Wallace, many secular people have said it's just a human thing. We all live by faith. The question is not do you live by faith, it's who or what do you put your faith in. The culture, as a general rule, tells us to put our faith in ourselves in our own inner barometer of good and evil and our own inner intuitions. To follow your heart, we are told, is the path to human flourishing. Of course, politicians and marketing departments the world over have a vested interest in us believing this because it keeps us blind to just how much of our inner barometer has actually been shaped by their desires, not by the deepest desires, not just of our body, but of our heart. It's behavioral economics masquerading as be true to yourself individualism. And the signs are all around us that our culture's mental maps are off kilter. But what is it that we all want? No two people are the same, and I just love the diversity and complexity and ambiguity of the human condition. But almost all of us basically want the same constellation of things. We want to be happy, but more we want to become good to love and be loved as we are with our lack of goodness, to live with meaning and purpose and to suffer and die, there's no way around that, but to do so from a place of deep peace 
and pervasive joy in loving community. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, defined sin as, quote, unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. To turn that around, obedience to Jesus and his way is willingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. May God give you and me and us grace to live as a community of orthodoxy and a culture of ideological idolatry. To follow Jesus with all of our questions and all the things we don't get yet, to follow Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's stand together and even you at home, if you would stand up off your couch or in your kitchen. I just wanna give you a moment. I'm here to curate, not manipulate. Just give you a little space before we sing to just take that inner fulcrum of your heart and surrender it to God. To let go to the love and trust, yielding and surrender to the love and the wisdom and the authority of Jesus, the King, to move deeper into the kingdom.